Welcome everybody to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rutterford, a physiotherapist, Pilates instructor, and fellow hippie. We're here to talk about all things hip dysplasia, to build a community, to support and guide each other through the ups and the downs. If you like the podcast, please share it and rate it. It really helps others to find it too. If you have any questions or feedback, please email me at laura at helpforhipdysplasia.com. I also just wanted to let you know that I am now on Patreon with my library of hip-friendly Pilates and mobility classes, my Stand Stronger program, and lots more useful hip-friendly tools. If you want to have a look at this, check this out at patreon.com forward slash help for hip dysplasia, or you can find it in the link in my Instagram bio or on my website. Let's get on with the show. Welcome everybody to the Health for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I am so happy this week to introduce our next guest, Sophia Laukanka from Melbourne, Australia. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to like join in. So we've obviously been having um, a little bit of a chat on Instagram um, behind the scenes over the last few months. Um, and I've just been learning a little bit more about your hip dysplasia story. And we had a few conversations that just... Um, we thought might be beneficial for both you and perhaps other people in the hip dysplasia community to be able to hear your story. So um, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little bit of a rundown about your history when you first started experiencing your pain, when you first got your diagnosis, how that happened. Hmm, yeah, uh, it is a bit of a story, actually. Um, so I always remember growing up that um, just at PE at school that I wasn't able to run or anything I always had pain in my ankles I would roll my ankles I had pain in my knees and also my hips and um, my mum and stepdad at the time they would like walk behind me uh, just on the street and they would quack at me and just saying like you like just walk normal and like just put one foot in front of the other like straight and like for them, like I, I was my mom's first child, so she didn't know any better. She was just like, why do you have a funny walk? Um, but, yeah, I, w- I always went to, um, to see physiotherapists because of my ankles and my knees, and they just gave me exercises for them since I, since I was six, really. Um, and... Yeah, I um, couldn't, like, I wanted to do field hockey because I grew up in the Netherlands and that's, like, a big, big sport there. But because I always had, like, joint pain in my limbs, I couldn't do it. So I started swimming, started getting into water polo, which was great because I wasn't hurting as much. Um, And, yeah, then I just kept doing that. Um, But... I, like I got I got injured all the time actually like but not just my hips but also my shoulder and then I had a shoulder reconstruction and then I just kept having pain in my knees and hips and all the time also like m- my hip would get stuck um, and I would like had to readjust how I sat and it would click really loudly and then it was all good. And I was like, oh, that's normal. That's just how it is that like everyone has that. And no one really looked into my hips much um, until I came here to Australia. Um, I, start, I picked up water polo again after like having some time off. 
and uh, my hips started really hurting uh, when I was doing egg beating because egg beating is kind of like a weird, like egg beating is like the way you tread water in water polo. So okay. it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, you call it egg beating. It's like uh, something like people might know because you use it in synchronized swimming. You see it a lot. It's like the um, one it's the unsynchronized movement of the leg. So you do like a breaststroke kick, but like one leg after the other, if that oh, makes sense. God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. so you can stay up like really high, but like you can imagine like because you like really splay your legs while doing it, it's actually quite straining on the hips after a long mm. time. Um, so I started going to physios again. I'm like, it actually hurts inside the joint. And they're like, no, 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 your glutes are just not activating. We have to do more glute strength. Um, probably something that everyone that has like late diagnosis has heard before, like with misdiagnosis, like your glutes are just not working, just work them. Um, so that, um, that worked for a little bit, like doing a lot of clams every day, like just repetition, repetition. It went, went away a little bit, but like as soon as I got in the water and like didn't do any of the exercises, it just like came straight back the pain. And then I wanted to like get more into it and like more exercising, try different things as well. So I started doing boot camps and then my knees started to give. So I went to, instead of physio I was like maybe I'll try osteo so I went to the osteo and he actually said well your knees are not great and um, but your hips are also not great and it is up to you which one we should go investigate first so I went down the hip pathway so I went to go and see uh, my first orthopedic surgeon um, who ordered me to get an MRI scan and then he just said oh you have a labral tear there's some cysts and um, yeah we might just do um, um, just fix your labrum and um, that's it and maybe down the line a, a hip replacement and that, like I was just just before my 30th birthday it was and I was like what is going on and like at that yeah at that point no mention of hip dysplasia whatsoever. No x-rays were ever done. Um, so then I went to see, like, I was like, this is, doesn't sound right. So I went to another orthopedic surgeon that was recommended by um, one of my colleagues who's a GP. Um, and this guy was the most the worst person I've ever met actually like I got in there and I came in there with my hip MRI and I was like look I just really want to exercise again and stuff without being in so much pain I want to do obstacle course racing because I started getting into that and I just started doing all these things that made it worse and the pain got, was getting worse and I was just like I just want a solution here and he was like, mm, no, you can't do anything, not with those hips that you brought in here. And that's it. And he sent me away. And I was like $300 like lighter. And he was like, that was it. I'm like, no, nah, this, is, this is wrong. 
So I kind of gave up on the orthopedic surgeons for a little bit because I was so traumatized by, by him. Um, and then I went to um, more physiotherapists. I started trying all these different ones. Like I started doing more uh, weightlifting to like not be running that much um, because water polo was like, I was unable to do like, like breaststroke kicking and and um, so I tried to do exercise but everything at this point was aggravating it so going to more physios and then eventually saw a sports GP who sent me to a sports orthopedic surgeon who finally um, ordered me to get an x-ray and he's like you have severe dysplasia it's like your your um, hips are barely uh, covered by uh, your sockets I'm like okay well this is the first time hearing this and I've always had hip problems so um yeah he sent me to the um, to another orthopedic surgeon who is specialized in um, um child hip dysplasia uh, here in uh, here in Melbourne, um, and he's great. Like people come to him from all over the country. Some people that listen to your podcast might hear uh, have heard of him, Jid Balakuma. Um, so yeah, now he's great, and he's like yeah. So um, it was pretty severe um, doing, and he was gonna do a PAO initially, um, and then he did extensive um, imaging. And then he said, I had huge subchondral cysts in, uh, in my left hip that have got, like, had gotten worse since my first MRI that he saw. Um, so, yeah, I, I haven't, like, I can't find that much information about subchondral cysts. Uh, but, like, apparently my um, cartilage was okay, but because of, like, the size of these subchondral cysts is like we can't do PAO so now in two weeks I'm getting my first left hip replacement yeah. so, I mean, that's quite a journey isn't it from um, mm. you know having this hip pain since you were small and your parents what did you say quack <laughs> quacking so yeah. walking a bit like, yeah. like a duck um, like and now going through all of this time, and did you say you're um, you're 30 now, or you're 29 still, or I'm 32 now. 32. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's quite a long time from symptoms to diagnosis, which is unfortunately something that we hear all too often um, on this podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, the time from pain to diagnosis is unfortunately um, a little longer than we'd like it to be. Um, mm. So how how did you feel when you got told about the hip replacement? What was going through your mind when you heard this is a either potential solution, next step? What was the mindset? Well, first, I was a little bit gutted because in my head, a hip replacement is something that you do when you're 60 or like older. That's always the like picture that you have. And also like what social media and like the internet and everything, what you see around is like when you see something about a joint replacement, every advertising is like an elderly 
person. So like, I'm not like that. I'm like quite young and healthy. Um, so that was a little bit hard, but then I was just like, I just want to get like, be done with this pain. So um, talking uh, to my surgeon, uh, he was like, when you do, you're 32, you have like already quite severe damage in the bone. If we do PAO, like it's quite a huge like surgery. So, um, and he's like, I don't want to do it. Uh, and then in five years saying like, we should have just done hip replacement straight away. Um, yeah. And I just fully trusted him and I was like, okay. Um, every now and then it was a little bit tough to, to realize. And, but now I'm just so ready for it. <laughs> yeah. So if, you, if you're feeling ready for it, so how did you get to the stage from going about being nervous to being ready about for it? What did you to speak to more people? You learned a little bit more about it, looking at resources. Um, how did you go from that mindset to this one now? I guess just being, I've, I've just been real, really open to everyone um, talking about it and all my friends and family, they're like, oh, this is going to be like the best solution because we see you're in always, always in so much pain. You had to get, you have had to give up so many things that you love doing. So if this is the solution, you should definitely do it. And uh, one of my colleagues, um, he got, um, bilateral um, hip replacements early 40s but that was just because he was playing too much footy and it was bone and bone so it was a different story but still um, I just asked him every time I saw him I was talking about his hip replacements how his hips are going and um, so that was really good to have someone around that is young and has had it as well and is so happy with that um, yeah, I think that that really helped just to have people people around that like saying you should like it's definitely the best for the yeah for the best. Absolutely, and I mean I I feel very privileged in the position that I am to be able to speak to so many people who have had the surgery, um, who have had either you know unilateral or bilateral hip replacements, and to hear so many amazing outcome stories. Um, so, you know, from a personal perspective, you know, I'm supposed to be due one in another four or five years, something like that. Um, and gradually over the time that I've been able to meet so many people with similar presentations, going through these hip replacements, coming out the other side, being able to work with people on a one to one and help them through their rehab. It just my anxiety level used to be up here about having a hip replacement. And now it's kind of just gradually going down and down and down. Um, the more positive stories that I'm hearing about it. So uh, I hope that that can feel the same for you and others listening and that the more this is talked about, the more experiences that people hear about with positive outcomes, um, the less anxious that people will be about having it. So um, I did want to go back and ask you a few more things about your um, story today, if that was okay. Yeah, 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 of course, yeah. So um, water polo, I'm a bit intrigued to ask a bit more about the uh, ins and outs of water polo because... I think not having any idea about the sport, um, and I don't know if other listeners have uh, a really good idea about exactly what it is. I don't think it's massive um, in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. So in the water, obviously, there's less impact through the joints, right? But yeah. from what I can imagine, there's a lot of 
you know, it's quite it's quite physical with each other and kind of moving around and twisting, turning, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of kind of physical impact like together rather than impact to the floor. And um, so what parts about the water polo were the things that you struggled with? Was it, you know, about this egg beating kind of staying up yeah. or was it about the physical impact of it as well? Well, not so much the physical impact because that's mostly with your upper body that you like have quite some physical impact. Um, it was mainly the the egg beating um, right. because when you also when you because you can't like stand on the ground, so you're like just constantly keeping yourself above right. the water, using your legs, and you're jumping out. Um, out the water like using your legs you like you have to like um, be really quick changing direction as well so what you do you kind of like make yourself really small and draw your knees to your chest and then kind of like um, swing your hips around and do like a massive breaststroke kick to like propel yourself the other way um, and those things I was just unable to do at one point. And on my x-ray, it actually showed that um, I think it was my right hip that the, the ball of my joint was actually a little bit grand flat because of the um, yeah continuous like egg beating that I've done over the years. Yeah. So there was a post on your Instagram that I saw where you had your x-ray or your scan and you kind of highlighted areas and you were like, this is what years of playing water polo when you have severe hip dysplasia will do to your hips. And you could actually see that that was flattened that little bit more because of that. And I just, I wanted to ask you about that because I just thought, do you think that actually, even though it was non-impact, actually that that repetitive kind of rotation and that repetitive motion has actually had that effect of grinding that down and is that something that the gps kind of confirmed for you was was the what happened yeah like the um, my last sports physio like um orthopedic surgeon he like he kind of said that he's like it looks like you've ground with all the water polo because he's wow. seen quite a few water polo players he's like you guys that you don't complain at all you like just impact after impact and you just keep going and that's what I've always been doing I've just kept going and going I'm like oh it hurts a little bit I'll be fine it like it came all of a sudden and it'll go away but this never never went away (laughs) yeah so obviously that was quite a big part of your life sort of being in the water playing water polo so you did say again in one of your posts that sort of your water polo, your running, general exercise that's kind of ceased or just quite significantly reduced since you've had sort of your diagnosis and your pain has increased. Um, but is being in the water something that you still manage to do in some way or another? Is it being in the water that you miss or was it kind of the team sports? I think it's it's definitely a combination. I am not a person that just I, I do love the pool. I love going like for a swim, um, but I get bored real easy. So um, I just have to like keep having to do something. So like just swimming in uh, lanes that's just too boring for me. But at the moment, um, I'm in Melbourne. And we have been locked down for over 200 days now, I think, in total throughout the last 
year and a half or so. So um, I think the last month or like month and a half, the pools haven't even been open. And if they are open, it's like too busy and I don't want to go when it's too busy. Um, so yeah, it's 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 been a little bit hard to to exercise because at the moment I'd rather go to the pool because now even walking is getting real real hard and I don't know if it's a psychological thing that I know that um, my surgery is coming up that my body is just like all right stuff it we'll just like let you know in how much pain we actually are uh, mm-hmm. so just stop doing it every like stop doing anything that you do that's uh is that is that potentially a part of your your job and your work coming out there your scientific analytic brain <laughs> as to whether it's pain whether it's psychology whether it's any of these things that are kind of all coming together to give you that kind of feeling yeah probably yeah I'd, I'd like to overanalyze <laughs> and I think the brain always pe- plays a bigger part in everything that we think yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was um, I've seen a few posts of you kind of in the gym doing some weightlifting stuff. And you mentioned earlier that you had done a little bit more of the weightlifting type side of exercise because, again, it's a bit less um, impact. Um, so how have you gotten on with that? Is that something that you used to do or is that something new that you've taken up because of the hip dysplasia? Um No, I think it's definitely something like... Uh, it's not necessarily I didn't know I had hip dysplasia when I started doing it I just knew I had a lot of hip pain and couldn't do like a lot of running or um, other things Um, so yeah I I actually really really enjoyed that but then then again then you find limitations in that as well so uh, deadlifting got really hard all of a sudden because my back started like my lower back started giving in and like talking to physios I mean I'm not a physio myself but it's like your hips like are so unstable so I guess your lower back is working a lot harder to keep everything in place because um so it makes sense why everything is a little bit harder but um yeah it's just really it was like really hard every time to just walk into like something that you start loving because you can't do something and then just finding yourself unable to do it again and again. And like, you just keep like finding those hips again. Yeah. Yeah. So there was also something that we discussed um, prior to even talking about coming on this, this podcast really. And um I hope it's okay to to bring this up but you had mentioned that these symptoms that you've had the pain that you've had um it's something that you found quite confronting and quite emotional to to deal with you said that it's something that you've found really difficult to talk about and something you've kind of suppressed um to a point that sometimes it feels like it kind of bubbles up and and can't come out and so I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit more of about that um, and how you feel that you've managed with it on an emotional level um, and kind of, again, how that's potentially um, changing or staying the same um, in whatever direction now that you're getting the surgery. Mm. Yeah, that's a a good question. Um, I haven't really, I don't, I think it all happened real quick from like in, in the time from less than a year I got like 
from hip dysplasia, like diagnosis hip dysplasia to like getting PAO or no PAO, getting total hip replacement. Um, and I think I've just, over the years, I've always managed to just like suppress every emotion um, because I was like, what, like, I'm, I'm young. I never knew I was like an underlying cause of all the pain, I guess. And no one else can see it. And like growing up, people like my, my, like I was, I grew, grew up with the message don't complain, don't do this, don't show emotions too much. So I didn't want, I didn't want to whinge. So I just kept going with everything, I guess. Um, and because no one can see it, it's not something that someone can see like, oh, you're obviously, you know, in pain. It's, it's, I think it's really, yeah, still really hard. And I don't think I've um, completely actually allowed myself to be vulnerable and emotional because um, I just talk about it and switch off. Like I talk about it a lot, but without emotions, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, just a kind of to protect myself, I guess, um, because it's, it's not just um, the pain that you're having. It's just the adjustments to your life that you have to make and the sacrifices that you have to make. And um the weight gain and um it's just yeah it's like the body image it's just everything that um i think um i yeah i paired paired with is with it that makes it difficult and very complex um emotionally absolutely yeah. i just want to congratulate you on your bravery and in, in coming and having this conversation today because I think like you said it could be quite a therapeutic thing to do and I hope you'll perhaps look back on this conversation and just be really proud of yourself for having the ability to open up about some of those difficulties because it you know it's something that I, I completely can relate to about being brought up in a way that says you know, don't show too many emotions, be, you know, make everything pleasant for everybody, don't create too much of a fuss, um, you know, you don't ever want to be a burden to anybody. Um, and yeah, this is this is a massive journey that I'm going through personally at the moment to, to try and overcome being able to be more open about those feelings and discussing those things. So I can completely relate to how challenging that can be um, and how you don't even want to admit those things to yourself because you just want to be that brave super strong person um, that just knows they can get through it um, and unfortunately sometimes exactly like you said you know you can keep it kind of bottled up and bottled up um, and unfortunately sometimes that can come out in ways that you don't expect it later on so I think being able to to share your story and being able to talk about some of those other things that you did just very briefly mention at the end there, um, definitely something that's important to, to reflect on. Um, and I hope, again, it re resonates with other people that are listening, those other things that you mentioned about the, the psychology of it and how it impacts your day-to-day -day thoughts, how it affects your body physically in terms of, you know, like you said as well about body image and weight gain, inevitably, 
things are going to change if your activity level is is changing and your mind is really having to cope with something different and like I said I just want to thank you for being open and honest about that um, and I just know 100% that there will be other people out there that are feeling exactly the same so thank you so much for that bravery um, so two weeks time um, you're having you're having your surgery so are you prepped and ready do you um, have any kind of questions about sort of prep or any kind of questions that perhaps we can put out to other people that might help you um, with getting ready for the physical surgery? Oh, well, yeah, well, I have so many questions. I actually, today I got like the admission forms for, um, for the hospital. So um, um, yeah, but it was a lot to take in. So I'm having an information session on Monday about joint replacement. They give you an information session. Um, which is yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I haven't really thought about the questions I should ask. I guess, do I, like, little things, do I need a toilet razor? Like, you know, one of those, like, raised toilet seats <laughs> or these are such good questions um yeah. there's there's um i don't know if you've listened to um many of the other podcasts but this is quite a big um point of conversation um in some of the some of the episodes some of the things that people come up with the things that, to think about before and after the surgeries that perhaps they wish they'd known um yeah. there are things that i would never have even thought of um but there's some really cool uh tips in some of the other episodes so like things like wear a backpack when you're in your crutches when you're going around the house so you can carry things around with you or and um, someone mm. even said you know that they had like a mini fridge and a microwave next to their kind of chair in the lounge because they didn't have a lot of other support around the house and little mm. things like those um grabbers that oh, you yeah, can yeah, buy yeah. to yeah. pick things up off the floor um having things like shoes that you don't have to you know bend over to tie up the laces little things like that they make a massive difference um yeah, and yeah. yes if you I don't know if you have occupational therapists um readily available to you over in Australia um but the occupational therapists in the UK um sometimes you get to have a meeting with them to discuss what your needs will be before and after surgery so sometimes mm -hmm. they'll depending on the amount of support that you have at home as well so things like um, handrails, you know, in the showers to keep you stable. Um, like you said, raised toilet seats, they do make things so much easier um, if you're um, struggling with the, the, the sit-to-stand element. Um, having those kind of walkers around the house that you can have the trays on. So again, you can kind of transport oh, yeah. things around. Um, so yeah, my advice there would be ask if there's an occupational therapist that you can have a meeting. If they haven't already offered it to you, two weeks before is probably a good time now to, to call in and ask if that's something mm. that's, that's possible. That's um, yeah. <laughs> um, and also ask um, what the physiotherapy is like afterwards, whether you get physio as a part of you know the the plan or whether it's something you have to source yourself because again that's something that you can be kind of planning for for afterwards as yeah. well yeah that's something that i've been seeing physiotherapists probably for the last three years um like at least once a fortnight so um 
and my and now I've been seeing this physio who works closely with my orthopedic surgeon and he mentioned that um, I shouldn't do anything for two weeks because and I've heard like some people saying like oh like I was walking up the stairs like the second or third day after my total hip replacement um so you hear like very mixed stories I'm like part of all the Facebook groups I think um that you can think of what is it like um hip dysplasia strategies for adults um PAO like groups um um like hip replacement for active people uh, it, like all these groups I'm like part of uh, on Facebook and yeah you hear so many mixed mixed stories uh, what uh, the orthopedic surgeons actually give for advice after mm-hmm. after the replacement so mine actually said that nothing for two weeks because he's like even the slightest movement of the prosthesis in your femur can like be detrimental for like 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 how it cements in your femur so for two weeks he just really wants it to cement in very very well um so yeah um i trust that and it makes sense to me for my to my scientific brain <laughs> i think the thing to to remember is that every surgeon will have a very slightly different protocol they might use different um, materials um different cements different you know everything about that surgery might just vary fractionally and that Mm. is going to have an impact on the protocol that they use afterwards um so I think even though you might hear lots of different stories that's because there are lots of different surgeons and there are lots of different ways that you can approach a hip replacement and I think the the best thing that you can do is to to have have a detailed discussion with your with your surgeon um about you know feel free to question them right say okay well you Mm. said that this is two weeks but why is that and if you understand the reasoning why you have these certain restrictions or certain things that you're able to do at certain times I think it really helps to calm the anxiety behind you know all these other people are doing this and that and the other and actually I know I'm doing this because yeah and then I think it it can really help um so yeah, I would I would say make a list over the next couple of weeks of questions that you might have for your for your surgeon and write them down in a list because I've spoken to so many people that say I had all these questions and then I went in and my mind went blank and I couldn't answer and then it's so difficult to get an appointment with them either over the phone or face to face to be able to actually ask that list of questions that you want to yeah. just have them to hand and just have them in front of you so you can literally go hang on I just want to check that I've asked every other question that was on my list and I did the same to to my consultant yeah. when I went for my review earlier this this year and um I know he was time pressured bless him but he was so patient with me and um I said do you mind if I just read through this list because I just want to make sure that I've asked everything and he said yes of course um yeah. so yeah don't be afraid to to ask the questions um yeah. so that would that would be a big uh, a big recommendation from me yeah, I'll definitely write stuff down because, like, last time I saw him, I went in and I'm like, okay, um, we're doing a hip replacement. Yeah, ceramic on ceramic, that's fine. This is, yeah, all right, great. That's that's it. And then I just left. I'm like, hold on. 
I had all these things <laughs> I wanted to ask and I just completely forgot. Um, but yeah, so that's that's good. Um, but apparently like something that like I actually don't have not heard much about is like these significant cysts that I'm having and I'm actually having a bone graft um, in the cavity. So mm. I don't know if you've like if you know much about it because like I certainly don't and like I always go through PubMed um, and like go like look at papers yeah. and try to like look at cases, case studies or anything, um, but I just can't really find that much about um, subchondral cysts and hip replacement and the combination and um, bone grafting those. So um, my knowledge on the area is not as high as I'd like it to be. Um, I like we said in our conversations before this podcast, it isn't something that comes up a lot in these conversations. Um, and whilst I have got some experience, I definitely don't feel like it's enough to be able to give you know a lot of information on this podcast. But what I would love to do, um, and what I'm already getting excited about in my mind, is some of the consultants that I've spoken to over the last few years um, who are super passionate, super like wanting to get involved and help spread this information I'm going to reach out to a few of those consultants um, and just say would any of you be happy um, to talk about subchondral cysts hip replacements and bone grafting um, and then perhaps we can give more information out there to, to people and yeah just raise that awareness give a little bit more information out there so um, mm -hmm. I will do my very very best over the next month or so to get in contact with a few people and see if we can yeah get a little bit more information out there and I hope that will be helpful. Mm, yeah yeah because it, it is it is I think yeah I don't I haven't even like when you look at people uh, on like the support forums and stuff it's not often that you see or hear about these subchondral cysts so I don't know if it's like if how common it, it is even mm -hmm. um, yeah it's 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 interesting and I really like maybe you have some tips and tricks how to like do that because here in Australia I feel like not that much awareness. I mean, I had to see four different orthopedic surgeons in like that are specialized in hips to say like, look, oh, you have hip dysplasia. Like it's, it's something that needs to change, right? How do you like, because like you are in the UK and I feel like in Europe and um, the UK and the US, it's, it's quite... Um, out there it's like getting the awareness is getting better um, and that was what my surgeon was saying he is trained in Switzerland and he's like where were you born I was like in the Netherlands he's like because the like in the late 80s they were actually doing um, more um, intensive um, there was a program I don't you probably know the program like I think there was a there was quite a few countries in, in in Europe that were doing that program where they were testing like more and more babies for hip dysplasia but the Netherlands wasn't part of the program apparently right. <laughs> so I think it was it, Germany Sweden maybe the UK yeah. I'm not sure but yeah I don't think the UK was involved in that um 
I mean, it it may have been in certain areas, but definitely not um, something that was uh, over overriding. Um, and so I definitely uh, wasn't a part of that when I was little. Um, exactly. But yeah, definitely yeah. Uh, Sweden and Sweden and Germany. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely something that we're continuing to strive for with raising awareness of hip dysplasia, trying to um, educate sort of young parents, um, young parents, parents with their young children. Um, to get them tested um, and if people don't know about the condition don't know to get it tested um, then you know obviously more people are going to be missed but not even from just um, educating you know the parents side of things you know I'm really passionate about trying to change the educational system to make sure that you know other people in the health profession are aware of this as a diagnosis and to know the signs to look out for because unfortunately, and again, there's a big sort of gap in um, in the knowledge within different areas of the health profession, that there are a lot of people that aren't taught about it in their training. Um, and again, that's something that I'd really love to, to be something that's changed in the future. Um, and again, for more frequent scanning um, to, to happen at that younger yeah. age. But um, fingers crossed that things will continue to change as awareness gets a little bit yeah. um, better. And um, but I know you did say before that, like you said, awareness in Australia doesn't seem to be um, as as high. Um, but there are a few charities in Australia that I've um, been in contact with and spoken to that are really trying to make a change for um, for babies and uh, the early years for really pushing that awareness and mm. prevention being better than cure um, as a way forward. So like I said, fingers crossed that things are hopefully changing for the better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I keep like all my friends that, that are getting pregnant, I'm like, make sure you get your baby <laughs> tested when they are born <laughs> because they don't want Absolutely. to end up like me. Yeah. So um, just to give a shout out to um, Healthy Hips Australia, um, they're the people that are really advocating all of these, um, you know, prevention, get things tested, you know, giving awareness of all the, um, the, the signs and the risk factors. So uh, they always do look for really great infographics on their social media pages. Um, mm. So, yeah, if you're looking to uh, find some places that you can help to spread awareness or yourself or anybody listening, um, then they're a really great um, page of resources and charity for, for that as well. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I just want to thank you so, so much again for coming on and sharing your story. And I know it will have resonated with so many other people listening. So, yeah, I just want to thank you so much for your time. It's been really wonderful being able to chat with you, get to know you a little bit better and uh, hear more about your story. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And yeah, I hope it gives a little bit of like, yeah, understanding and yeah, um, just what I what I found in like listening to other people's stories, just a little bit of comfort. Absolutely. And uh, I think I can speak for everybody that listens to this podcast in saying best of luck for your surgery. Um, and I hope everything goes absolutely brilliantly for you and that the rehab afterwards um, that goes really, really well. So um, thank you so much again. And I'd love to catch up after your surgery and hear how you're getting on. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week again with another inspiring and incredible guest. If you'd like to be on the podcast and come and share your story, then please just send me an email at laura 
at helpforhipdysplasia.com. You can also find me on Instagram at laura.rutterford or by searching help for hip dysplasia and send me a message on there. I really look forward to speaking with you. We'll see you again next week. Thank you.